The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, a criminal scandal surrounding a prominent family of lawyers in the low country of South Carolina. They had money, power, and privilege until it began to unravel when Alec Murdoch's wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, were shot and killed on the family's sprawling hunting lodge. Now Alec is on trial for double murder, but is he a victim or is he a killer trying to cover up a long list of financial misdoings? Court TV's Chanley Painter joins me from Walterboro, South Carolina, as we dive deeper into this bizarre web of allegations. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading. Thank you for listening. And wow, uh, what a podcast we have here talking about the biggest trial taking place right now in the United States of America. And it's taking place in a very small community. I call this the big trial in the small town. It's Alec Murdoch is his name. That's not how he spells it. He spells it A-L-E-X, but everyone calls him Alec. I don't know why, but but they do. Uh, his last name is Murdoch, but it's spelled M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H. So when I first started covering this, it was the Alex Murdoch, Murdoch trial, but now it's the Alec Murdoch trial. And give you a little background, this is a guy who was a very successful attorney making seven figures, seven figures per year doing plaintiff's work, personal injury work. Someone gets, you know, into an accident. Someone gets hit by a train. Um, someone is using a product that uh, is, is defective and harms somebody. These are the types of cases that he has, and he's been making literally millions of dollars doing it. And he lives in this very rural country kind of town. Um, Culleton County, Hampton County, Hampton County is where his law firm is. Uh, Culleton County is where his sprawling 1,700 acres uh, are, where he hunts and he lives. He also has a beach house. Uh, he was married to his wife, Maggie. He had two children who were, you know, they were grown up to a certain extent, um, Buster and Paul. So this is a guy who had it all. I mean, you're making seven figures in the low country of South Carolina, where he's living. You are a king. And he comes from low country royalty because his family, the Murdoch family, for years, since 1910, when his great-grandfather founded the law firm, um, they've been controlling and really dominating the civil courts and the criminal courts of the low country because um, many of his, his father, his grandfather, great-grandfather were all solicitors, which are the local prosecutors in the low country. But down there, because there's just not that many people, not that much crime, you can be a prosecutor and you can also have your practice on the side. So you control the criminal courts and you are literally controlling the civil courts as the biggest plaintiff's firm winning big cases and and just making these big companies and corporations bow down and settle for large, large amounts. So that's who's on trial. And he's accused of murdering his wife, 
and his son, his wife Maggie, his son Paul, by shooting them both with two different guns on the same night, taking a shotgun and blasting his son's brain so they splattered all over the dog kennel on their property, and then hunting down his wife as she tried to run away and shooting her several times with an AR-styled blackout rifle. Wow. There's a lot to this case. So I've been down there and uh, covering this for us from the time of the of the crime uh, is Court TV legal correspondent Chanley Painter, who joins us right now from the Low Country. Chanley, how are you? Hey, Vinny. Great to be with you. What a story. What a trial. So uh, let's just start here and describe the scene at the courthouse. I tried to give folks a little bit of background about what the case is about. But what is the story inside this courthouse and this courtroom? Well, let's start outside the courthouse. First of all, it's a picturesque historic courthouse here in downtown Walterboro, a town of around 5,400 people in Colleton County. And it looks today, I'm looking at it as I'm talking to you, nothing like it usually does, right? It's surrounded by media from all over the nation. It is tent city. There are barricades blocking off where the media can be, where the public can be, where the line will form outside the courthouse, which it does every day, every morning as this trial goes on, the line is getting longer. There's a certain number of seats inside the courtroom. Those are taken every day, the full amount. And then inside, it's a large courtroom. I know you've been in there, Vinny. It is one of the larger courtrooms that we've been in for Court TV, 12 rows in the gallery. And so we have the public, we have the Murdoch family in there sitting behind Alec Murdoch. We have a lot of the investigators also sitting there on the prosecution side. And interestingly, a lot of the witnesses hang out inside the courtroom, which we don't see often. But it is something to behold, and it just continues to grow here as this case rolls on. And you talk about lines. You know, we're used to lines being when there's a big trial, like in Los Angeles or in another city. But to have a long line at a courthouse in Culleton County, South Carolina, to me, is is it speaks volumes about this case, this story. So this is about the ultimate betrayal, and there's and it's a it's a very a layered story. But I want to start here. Because um, on the night of the murders, Alec Murdoch is the one who calls 911 from his property to report that his wife and son have been shot. And he's interviewed by police. So let's listen to a little bit of this, because this is Alec's story of, of what he says he knows about the night that his wife and son were shot. I mean, I pulled up and I could see him and, you know, I knew something was bad. I ran out. I knew it was really bad. <laughs> my, my boy over there, I could see it was. And I could see his brain on his <laughs> And I ran over to Maggie and uh, actually I think I tried to turn Paul over first. Um uh 
you know, I tried to turn him over, and uh, I don't know, I figured it out. Um, uh, his cell phone popped out of his pocket. I started to try to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. Um, then I went to my wife, and I, I mean, I could see. Mm -hmm. mm, Touch Maggie at all? I did. I touched them both. Okay. I tried to take. I mean, I tried to do it as limited as possible, mm -hmm. but I, I tried to take their pulse on both of them. All right, there it is. I tried to take the pulse on both of them. I, this is a, a very. It's been described as an extremely bloody, bloody scene. Um, so, Chanley, if you could uh, describe for us what the scene was like, and then how Alec appeared that night what he looked like, what he was wearing, uh, that sort of uh, information. Yeah, so the jury has watched the initial police responder arrive to the scene. They watched his body cam. It was the very first thing they watched on day one of testimony. And you can clearly see Alec Murdoch. He's at the far end of the crime scene. So this officer has to kind of park almost in the middle of the crime scene and then walks through it past the bodies to Alec Murdoch, who's on the far end, uh, closer to where the residents would be at the home. And he's wearing a white t-shirt. He has on some cargo shorts, tennis shoes, and he's agitated. He's fidgety. He's immediately saying, are they dead? Uh, I just got here. I just got home. And, and you can see the uh, see the anxiousness and of course hear the anxiousness in his voice as well. He's asking if they're dead, uh, if that's been confirmed. And he immediately mentions the boat crash too, uh, which is also interesting, Vinny. He seems to mention that at every opportunity. And the boat crash is his son, Paul, got into a a boat crash, and he was um, allegedly steering the boat. It killed a young woman named Mallory Beach, and Alec was being sued. Paul was being sued and also being prosecuted criminally. Um, and it was a, a big, big deal down there uh, before this murder. It was like a huge story that the Murdoch's son was going to be criminally charged for driving a, a steering a boat while under the influence. And uh, now that he's been shot and killed, the criminal case goes away, but the civil case still pending. And I guess initially a lot of people down in, this, in the low country thought that someone was out to get the Murdoch family sort of revenge for that boat crash. But all those folks were cleared by investigators pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So what is Alex's story? Because he, he doesn't really have blood on him, right? It, he's, it, it, which is strange, right? You come upon two bodies of the two most important people in your life and they're on the ground and they're all covered in blood. And he was very careful, he said, not to disturb the scene. Yeah, that was a consistent theme of questioning that all of the officers testified to, that his clothing appeared clean, almost too clean, if he indeed went over to check for the pulses of Maggie and Paul, even trying to turn Paul over at one point or picking up his cell phone and putting it back. The evidence on him and at the scene really doesn't jive with his story, according to those officers who are there. And he has basically told so far, we haven't heard a third interview yet of him, but that he was at the house earlier in the evening. He he left work early that day so that he could be with Paul, who was at the farm. And they drove around, according to Alec Murdoch, for a couple of hours looking at the trees and the sunflower field that apparently was dying. And then Maggie arrived around dinner time. They had dinner, but Alec then goes and watched watches TV after dinner and falls asleep. 
he assumes that Maggie and Paul go to the kennels because Maggie loves to go to the kennels and, and, and be with the dogs there. And then he wakes up from this nap, Vinny, and he needs to go check on his mother because it is the first night that she's without his father, who was just put in hospice that day, is what he says. He tries to call and text Maggie, no response, but go, goes to mom's house, comes back. No one's home. That's when he drives to the kennels and finds the bodies. So Alex's story is, is that he's, he's, he's with the victims. They go to the kennels. He's watching TV. He falls asleep. He wakes up and he's going to go visit his mom. Who's about 18 minutes away. We've both taken that drive from the, from the property to his mom's house, which is 18 minutes away. And again, it's, it's, you know, the kennels aren't right next to the house. So you can exit the house without going past the kennels. So he texts Maggie and then takes the drive to his mom's hangs out there, comes back, finds the bodies. So the, the timeline here is very, very significant. Now, this was his initial story, and, it's, and, it's, and the jury has heard it. But the jury has also heard um, the audio and seen a piece of video because Paul, before he's shot and killed, is taking video of one of the dogs that he's caring for. And in the background, we hear three voices at the kennels. Let's listen. Get back. Get back. Quit, Cash. Come on. Quit. Okay. Come here. Come here. Come here, Cash. Come on. Post it. Get Hey, he's got a bird in his mouth. Bubba. Hey, Bubba. This is a chicken. Come here, Bubba. Come here, Bubba. Come here, Bubba. That is the voice that is Alec Murdoch in the background at the kennels. So, Chanley, put this into the timeline for us. When is this recording made? When do prosecutors suspect the murders took place? Vinny, this is huge. This blows a hole in what we just talked about, his alibi. There's no way he can be napping at the residence several yards away on this big property and also be heard in a video at 8.44 to 8.45 p.m. Minutes before prosecutors say the murders happened, like within three minutes, many is what they said in opening statements. And you can clearly hear Alec Murdoch's voice. So far, this jury has heard from two witnesses who say 100, 1,000% that is Alec Murdoch's voice. They'll probably hear from more witnesses who confirm it is his voice in that video. But not only that, Paul Murdoch was on the phone with his friend minutes before this video was made. And his friend on the witness stand also said in that phone call, four minute phone call, I could clearly hear Alec Murdoch's voice before this video was made too. So he was there for a while. And how do prosecutors deduce that the time of the murders is about three minutes after this. You know, this is really the fascinating part of this case, how your cell phone, Vinny, can literally track almost every move you make. It's kind of scary to think about, but that's what helps the prosecutors narrow in on this time of death, because soon after Paul makes this video, they can see the messages that he's reading, text messages he's reading on his phone, and when his phone locks for the very last time, which is a which is a 180 change of behavior because he's always on his phone, 
always checking it. It has a low battery. He's on it so much. And same with Maggie's. Just about 30 seconds after Paul's phone locks for the very last time, Maggie's phone locks for the very last time, changing the behavior of her usage of the cell phone. And so that to prosecutor shows that they had to be dead within three to four minutes around 8.50 p.m. the night of June 7th, 2021. That's amazing. That's amazing how they they put those pieces together based upon cell phone usage. I mean, cases like this probably couldn't be prosecuted without cell phone evidence. Mm -hmm. If this took place 20 years prior, 25 years prior, we would have none of this. And it would be more about what eyewitnesses saw and approximate times. Here, things get much more exact. And for Alec Murdoch, um, the timeline is so, so significant. Um, Every single minute counts when you're talking about having the window of time to be able to commit this crime or make it impossible for him to commit this crime. So uh, Chanley Painter is in the low country. Uh, We're going to continue talking about this. When we come back, we'll talk about um, not only that timeline and the window of time, and we'll hear from the first person to speak with Alec Murdoch after the murders, but we'll also talk about what may be the prosecutor's most difficult thing to prove, which is a reason, a motive for this murder. What did he say? He just said that he was at the house. The 34 minutes, I said. You said what? Was he there 30 or 40 minutes that night? Not to my recall. Why are you crying, Miss Because he's a good family, a good family, and I love working here. And I'm sorry all this happened. That is Shelly Smith. She is the caregiver for Alec Murdoch's mother, Libby, who suffers from dementia and needed care around the clock. So she was working an 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. shift like she always did regularly. And there she is describing um, a conversation with Alec Murdoch. And this was a conversation that took place several days after the murders where Alec Murdoch is telling Shelley Smith that he was with her and with his mother for 30 or 40 minutes the night of the murders. He's telling her how long he was there because this is where he went. When he, you know, when he said he woke up from that nap and left his property, he went to his mother's house. His mother can't testify. She has dementia, but her caregiver can and did testify, Shelly Smith. And this is a woman on the witness stand. Wow. You could tell how much all this has really impacted her. But she is telling this jury that Alec Murdoch is telling her a few days later that she's there, that they, he was there for 30 to 40 minutes on the night of the murders. Like I said, every single minute counts when it comes to the alibi and the amount of time that the prosecution needs to account for to make it possible for Alec Murdoch to, committed the, to have committed these murders. So let's bring back in Chanley Painter in the Low Country. Alec Murdoch, 
telling Shelly he was there 30 to 40 minutes, but what did she tell the jury about how long he was actually there? Yeah, Vinny, that was probably the strongest part of her testimony, what you just played, because she had testified that he was there in total maybe 15 to 20 minutes. And that includes the time that he calls suddenly, unusually, late at night, arriving at his mom's home. Outside, he's outside. It takes her about five minutes to let him in. And then he stays there for maybe 15 more minutes before going home. He does visit his mother, holds her hand, lays down on the bed with her, but he's on his phone much of the time. She describes him as sort of fidgety uh, while he's there, a little bit distracted. And then he leaves. And it's kind of bizarre because the, the sun set at 829 that night. So it's already dark. I've been to the low country, Chanley. You've been staying there. You you go to a restaurant at 830 at night. The place is empty. Like, like it's, it's really small town America. You know, when the sun sets, you roll up the sidewalks, if there are sidewalks, but nobody's out. You know, you don't go out at nine o'clock at night. And why would you visit your mom who's suffering from dementia at 930 at night? You know, it, it, and she's yeah. sleeping, right? She she's was sleeping. even sleeping. She's sleeping. There's a game show playing in her room where Shelly is. And the reason that she says Alec Murdoch gave her for being there is because it is the day that his father goes to hospice. So he wants to check in on his mother. So it is sort of an unusual circumstance that he would want to make sure to go check on mom the first night alone. Uh, but other than that, her testimony was like, this was highly unusual for Alec Murdoch, even though of his siblings, he was the one to visit the most, Vinny. Yeah, that's true. That is 1000% true. Um, but the timing of all of it is really, really strange. And you'd, you'd think maybe he'd visit his father instead, who had just been put into hospice. But maybe it's past visiting hours. I don't know. But a, a lot of this is very, very confusing and, and murky. But that brings us back now to really one of the ultimate questions in this case, and I think the most difficult for prosecutors to answer, even though legally... They have no requirement to do so, which is to explain to the jury why. And motive is not an element of, of the crime here. It's not anything that needs to be proven beyond any and all reasonable doubt. But it is something like you and I, both former prosecutors, um, sometimes need to explain to a jury, especially in a case like this where a man is accused of blowing his son's brains out literally splattering them all over a dog kennel and then hunting down his wife and the mother of his children. I mean, that is, those are some bizarre behavior, outrageous behavior, cold, um, sociopathic type of stuff we're talking about here. So generally speaking, how would you describe what the motive is here? Before we get and we'll listen to some of the testimony related to it, how would you describe what prosecutors are saying here? So according to Creighton Waters, the prosecutor's opening statement, he couldn't go into a lot of detail because the judge hadn't allowed in the financial allegations as part of this case. But he did give a preview in that he said the perfect storm was brewing in Alec Murdoch's life on June 7th, 2021. And what he was referring to is what now the jury is allowed to hear. And that is the fact that Alec Murdoch's decades of stealing from his law firm, from his client, 
fake accounts, um, trafficking, laundering had caught up with him. His financial house of cards was crumbling in and it was coming from all different directions. Not only his law firm had uncovered and confronted him the day of the murders, Vinny, with almost $800,000 missing, but also he was under intense pressure from the civil suit related to that boat crash that you you talked about earlier, that they were wanting to compel his finances. He had a hearing in just a few days concerning that. All of that was coming to a head on that date and to delay, distract, save himself, according to prosecutors, he went to the extreme of murdering his wife and son to distract, make himself look like a victim. Basically, he's the victim now. Don't come at me with the financial stuff. Right. And, and you know, folks in the low country are, are, are good people. So at a time where a man has just lost his wife and his son to a brutal crime and he may be the next target, uh, of course, you're not going to say, hey, where's the money, Alec? Nobody's going to do that. No judge is going to is going to push you to, um, you know, open up the, the books on your on your personal finances. And it worked. And it absolutely worked. It worked for a while. It, it really did. It, it bought him time. It did buy him time. So let's listen to some of these misdeeds and then we'll go into the backstories of each. Uh, but we begin with um, a, a young man who testified about the, the death of his mother and a lawsuit and Alec Murdoch. Um, take a listen. Um, after she passed, uh, did you have any conversation with Alec? Uh, about what to do about it? Uh, I did. And what was the conversation you had with Ella? Uh, what did I vaguely, say? Go ahead. Uh, I vaguely remember, but it was like, um, you know, let me go after my insurance company for this or whatever, you know, kind of get these medical bills and stuff paid. Okay. So he said he was going to go after his insurance company? Yes. And get medical bills for your mom paid? Yes. Did he say he might get any money for you and your brother? Yes. Did you ever get one cent from Alec Murdoch when he was still, before all of this happened? No. And it took, after this happening, and it took a legal process for that to happen, is that right? Yes. And ultimately, is it your understanding that he confessed judgment to taking money for both of those, is that yes. right? Okay, now the rest of the story. Chanley Painter, um, this involves the death of the Murdoch's housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, who was more than a housekeeper. She raised Paul and Buster Murdoch, the two kids. Mm -hmm. She was there day in and day out. What happened here? Yeah, what a tragic story. Gloria Satterfield worked for Alec Murdoch for nearly 25 years, like you said. And she tragically, in 2018, fell down the front steps of the Moselle home, not far from the crime scene, and hit her head. She died a few weeks later at the hospital. And Alec Murdoch, approached her son saying, sue me. I'm going to connect you with my my friend over here who was going to sue me. And I'll promise you both each uh, about $100,000. Well, according to the testimony, which he was such a strong witness in, in inside the courtroom, that was outside the jury's presence. But now he's going to testify in front of the jury at some point, Benny. He talks about how Alec Murdoch duped him, lied to him, and never told him about a massive multi-million dollar settlement that he received on his mother's estate. Instead, he outward pocketed it as his own. That's unbelievable. To have someone do that to someone that, you know, practically was a family member for 25 years, do that to her family, that, how is that going to play before this jury? Another case of betrayal. 
And this is what prosecutors need to convince this jury, that this guy will betray anyone. And, and the ultimate betrayal, you know, killing your own flesh and blood. Now, so Gloria, this is, I just want to recap this for everyone so they understand. Gloria Satterfield falls in Alec Murdoch's home. Alec Murdoch then profits from that. She, she slips and falls in his house and dies. And he ends up with millions of dollars in his pocket because he hooked up the Satterfield family with his friend and he and his friend take all the money, give nothing to the kids. And unbelievably, this guy, like she died on your front steps and you make millions. Unbelievable. Now let's get to the next one. Um, and this, this is probably the most closely related to the, to the murders in terms of time, because earlier during the day, Alec Murdoch was at work and was confronted by an accountant about some missing money, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's listen. Randy immediately conceded that we needed to, to talk to Alec, that it looked like he had stolen. What's the uh, total amount? $2,841,512.55. And it is my understanding that Alec admitted it and that it was determined he would resign. Yikes. Yikes. So that's a little bit after. The initial confrontation, the day of the murder, is for the $792,000. Uh, give us a little bit of the backstory of that, and then we'll get into what she just mentioned, because that's yeah. also a very significant moment. It really is. Uh, this is just hours before the murders, Vinny, where the CFOG seconder goes upstairs to confront Alec Murdoch. This has been ongoing for since, well, since about May, about a month or so, they've had this weird check issue in the office concerning Alec Murdoch. So she goes up and confronts him. He's leaning against a file cabinet, she says, gives, him, gives her a dirty look. Like, what do you want now? Why are you bothering me now? And she says, let's go into your office. They close the door. And she says, I have reason to believe that you stole $792,000 pocketed it yourself instead of giving it to the law firm as it was supposed to go. And of course, she says, Alec Murdoch immediately says, oh, well, you know, that's a mistake. I can explain it. It's in this other attorney's trust account. We got it covered. Don't worry. And then she says that they immediately got a phone call, or Alec Murdoch did, about his father being in hospice. So she turns from, you know, confronter to friend. The conversation immediately changes. She lets it go. And she believes that he immediately goes home, which we learn later he doesn't. But that's how that confrontation goes. And remember also, Vinny, when he's telling police what he did that day, he never happened to mention that he went home early because he was confronted at his law firm or that his dad was in the hospital. It was because Paul was home. He just wanted to spend time with Paul. So there's another discrepancy in his uh, story. Yeah, it's all, it's all, it doesn't make you think you would remember these things. Like a big thing, like your father going to hospice, that's a reason to leave work. Being confronted by the accountant about, uh, 800 or almost $800,000 in funds that uh, did not make its way to the law firm, but instead went directly to Alec Murdoch. Um, a big, big event. But what's interesting there is, is that as soon as the pressure is on him about the money, that phone call diverts the attention. Mm -hmm. And that's almost, I would almost argue to the jury, that's where the idea is planted in his head that, okay, that took the pressure off. I need to take more pressure off. Yeah. My, my wife and son are murdered. That'll clearly take everyone off of the track. Well, the 
What we just heard, the testimony that we heard involved his resignation from the firm, which takes place a little bit later. So when mm -hmm. we come back, we're going to we're going to talk about what also happened at that time. And again, this is a big moment, right? He's he's been asked to resign from the law firm for stealing more than two million dollars. And guess what, folks? There's another shooting. I got a flat tire, mm -hmm. and I stopped, and somebody stopped to help me, and when I turned my back, they tried to shoot me. Oh, okay. Were you shot? Yes, but okay. I mean, I'm okay. You shot where? Where were you shot at? Huh? Did they actually shoot you, or they tried to shoot you? They shot me, but... Uh, okay, wait, you need EMS? Uh, well... I mean, yes, I I can't drive. Okay. And I'm bleeding a lot. Where where part of your body? Uh, I'm not sure. Somewhere on my head. Your head? Somebody just stopped for me, ma'am. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, another financial problem. He's confronted about $2 million. He's got to resign. And then all of a sudden, on the side of the road, Chanley, on the side of the road, I've been to that spot. You've been to that spot. There's nothing there. It's just this long straightaway with a little little church with a red roof and, and a little house next to it, but no people. And somebody decides they're going to shoot Alec Murdoch in the head and when he calls 911, he starts telling them about his flat tire. Not like, hey, I've been shot in the head. Send me help. Right. I, I can kind of sense the 911 dispatcher a little incredulous to just the tone of her voice for you listening to that. But I, yes, I've been on that road, Vinny. I, we were there quite a while. I'm sure you were as well. Maybe one car passed by us the whole time that we were there on that small county road. Very, you know, it, it's just... The jury may get to hear about this, and that will be huge if they get to hear about this. So who shot him? Who shot Alec Murdoch in the head on the side of the road? What's the story behind that? Cousin Eddie. So Curtis Eddie Smith, who's actually a distant cousin of Alec Murdoch, is subpoenaed to testify in this case. And he's the one that is alleged to have met Alec Murdoch there on the side of the road. He was uh, called there by Murdoch allegedly asked him to shoot him, but he wanted to commit suicide. It is how it goes. And there was, well, the story has changed a couple of times, according to Curtis Eddie Smith. You know, whether there was a tussle over the gun or whether he actually did shoot him, we don't know, but maybe he'll tell us if he testifies in this trial. It's a bizarre story because at first it's like, okay, well now Alec Murdoch and his family are clearly the targets of someone who's out to get and eliminate the whole family. That's what it looked like when I first heard it. Mm -hmm. Then they investigated and he said, no, I set it up with Cousin Eddie, or allegedly he said this, I set it up with Cousin Eddie to shoot me to make it look like I got shot so my other son, my surviving son, Buster, could get the $10 million in insurance money. And uh, I don't know what Cousin Eddie is going to say. Uh, he and Cousin Eddie have a strange relationship, right? It's not just like they distant do. cousin, but... Um, Financial former client, former client, and and some financial dealings as well. Yes. So cousin Eddie also faces 
some of the same charges as Alec Murdoch. He's accused of running a drug trafficking ring. He was the drug dealer of Alec Murdoch, allegedly. He was also, of course, helping him launder all the stolen money from his clients and law firms, uh, more than $2 million. So he's facing indictments and charges on that, along with Alec Murdoch. And he's supposed to testify in this case possibly about this roadside shooting and, and being a part of this uh, financial scams that Alec Murdoch was running. Yeah, I think if the jury hears about this roadside shooting, they, they take a whole different look at Alec Murdoch. Now, I think he'll paint it as he was distraught. He had he had lost his, his wife and his son. He was depressed and he just wanted to die and make sure that his son would be taken care of because he knew all of these financial problems and lawsuits and everything that he wasn't going to have a dime for his son, Buster. And he just loves his family so much. I get what their story is going to be, but this is wacky. This is wacky. And it's, and it's very coincidental that, you know, three people in his family get shot, uh, but only one of them survives, right? He survives this somehow. Right. Right. I, I don't even know how this happened. Like, how do you get shot in the head and and not killed. Yeah. Like it has to be a freak accident or like very well orchestrated. And that's an issue in and of itself, because remember when this happened and we were all shocked, oh, someone's coming after Alec Murdoch and then we find out it's big stage suicide attempt and then everyone's arrested and then he's in court just a few days later and there's not, I don't, I, did you see the back? I didn't see any bandage yeah <laughs> anything his hair was wasn't even shaved it was all <laughs> you know i don't know what happened we don't know what happened he, he recovered very quickly from the gunshot to the head he, he there was blood though there, i mean he did actually get shot is no one saying he didn't get shot but he he amazingly survived this cousin eddie to me that's going to be an incredible moment uh when and if he takes the stand because i think there's a chance that the defense may try to paint him as someone who could have committed the double murder. Yeah. In fact, they've already accused him in the court documents before this trial, Vinny. There is an issue that apparently Cousin Eddie failed a polygraph test when asked about being at the crime scene at the time of the murders. And you and I know that polygraph, they aren't admissible in court, uh, but they have a motion that the judge has not decided on yet on whether or not uh, the defense can cross-examine him about his failed polygraph. We're going to hear about that. But it's also being reported by Fitz News that Curtis Eddie Smith is expected to testify that at this roadside debacle, Alec Murdoch confessed to him that he murdered his wife and his son. Wow. And that was a part of the reason why he wanted Curtis Eddie Smith to shoot him and kill wow. him. Wow. That's powerful. Um, but again, we say uh, Cousin Eddie is a character. He is a character. Yes. He has some credibility, credibility issues. Credibility is, is very much at risk here. And I could see the defense. Yeah, and, and here, you know, you look at what the truth what really, really happened. Like, there were two guns that were used that day. So the defense has been saying, you know, two shooters, two shooters. Well, I could see the jury saying, oh, yeah, well, maybe Cousin Eddie is the second shooter along with Alec. Very possible. So and and but but it becomes problematic for prosecutors because anytime you as a prosecutor put a witness on the stand and the jury doesn't believe him, um, it's not your fault. But if they don't believe that witness, it it doesn't help you. And you have that burden beyond a reasonable doubt. If the jury thinks there's something funny going on with one or more of your witnesses, 
um, they hold it against you. They can hold it against you. And that can be the foundation for uh, a reasonable doubt in the case. That's what makes him such an important, Mm -hmm. but very um, unpredictable witness. And uh, I will really be looking forward to seeing uh, and hearing his testimony and seeing how he holds up on cross-examination and what direction the defense goes and what the prosecution has him, asks him about and what he's actually going to say this time. Because again, folks, we call him Cousin Eddie for a reason, Mm -hmm. for a reason. All right, Chanley Painter in the low country of South Carolina. I know you've got a busy day ahead. You had a quick break from the courtroom, so you helped us out here. We appreciate that. Um, you know, we were broadcasting from Fat Jack, so if you see Fat Jack down there, uh, give my regards. I will. We'll be back down for the end of the case. Everyone misses you. <laughs> we'll be back down for the end of the case whenever that is, as it looks like the trial is going to take a little bit longer than originally scheduled. So, uh, Chanley Painter, thank you so much. Thanks, Benny. All right, folks, uh, that is it for this podcast, but you can watch the trial and our coverage begins at 8 a.m. on on Court TV, 8 a.m. every morning. Our our coverage begins Then you can watch my show uh, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. where we have the big moments, the big interviews and analysis of everything that's happening inside that courtroom each and every day. Of course, you can check the show notes uh, for links. Uh, if you don't have Court TV, uh, rescan your digital antenna. You can also go to CourtTV.com to find out where you can watch in your neighborhood. That's it for this week. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Core TV in your area.